You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to M Squared TechCast, a live internet radio show offering the latest news and interviews with the people driving business, technology, and politics in Michigan. Now, your hosts, Matt Rausch and Mike Brennan. Hey, it's Matt Rausch. And we're back with another Monday edition of the M Squared TechCast. Of course, it might be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, any day at all when you're watching this because we are a podcast and you can pick us up anywhere podcasts are distributed. Yeah, I mean, uh, even after we're live, we go on Facebook and uh, you'll get a, a thousand or so viewers. So that's pretty good, I think, you know, for a couple of old uh, old news guys. So yeah, this, a, couple old, a couple old tech reporters. Right? Yes, the first half of the show, the theme is Power of Women. And we have one of those with us here, Amanda Luan. Uh, who, uh, gosh, I've known you since you were a diva way back when, uh, and you did, what was it, Michipreneur? That was one of your publications, right? Yeah, yeah. I used to blog a lot and podcasts, and now it's the normal for everybody, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, pretty much. So, But one of the things that uh, you did that impressed me was uh, you're, you're the same age as my daughter, and so... Uh, uh, she hasn't created a big real estate empire like you have, but maybe I'll give her a little time to do that, right? So you have uh, Bamboo Detroit, which you've been doing now for, what, five, six years? Something yeah, like Bamboo's that? been around about seven years. We started it in 2013 when folks were kind of just starting to come back downtown uh, and move their offices down here. And then um, the first pandemic we've been through. <laughs> I don't know about you guys. <laughs> And well, then uh, now well, we're expanding. I, I was going to say, I, I wasn't around. I'm old, but I'm not old enough. Oh, I to thought you were in the 1918 pandemic. No, man. no, no. no sorry. <laughs> yeah, right. okay. Yes, I was serving you know? in the Great War. and uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he's wearing an Army uniform there, you know, the green and everything. Uh, yeah, so let's talk a little bit. Before we talk about what you're – the other thing you're working on, let's first – I always assume that folks don't always know what our guests do, so let's talk a little bit about – what Bamboo Detroit is, what it does, and then we'll talk about what you're doing in Royal Oak. Yeah, so Bamboo, we started in 2013 because there wasn't a space for people to go and work on new ideas. We always wanted to be a co-working space, a flexible space to start and grow companies. Um, Since then have grown to, uh, we now have about 20,000 square feet downtown and opening our second location shortly next year. Um, But what makes us unique is that flexible space and our programming and our, our community that helps usually a lot of entrepreneurs and creatives get started and start growing and tap into a network that supports you. So it's for us, it's really not just about offering flexible space, but that support that you need to really make it as, on your own as a business owner. Mm-hmm. So, so what kind of what kind of trends are you seeing in this market in terms of co-working spaces? I know, obviously, with the pandemic, people are worried about congregating in groups with people who are, aren't in their immediate households. So how how's that affected the business? Yeah, so I think like everything in commercial real estate, we obviously took a hit. 
But I will say that co-working, it's not what people think of. I think they think crowded, busy spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, Detroit really isn't full of crowded, busy spaces in in an office sense term. Um, And so it's actually mostly a mix of private spaces, private offices, space for teams, one to two people. um, And then you share common areas. So there are some spaces where you mingle and some spaces where you're private and set apart from everyone. Um, That being said, we've really encouraged, we have, have had mask wearing and social distancing and, you know, sort of removed some of our seating and uh, made that response to COVID immediately um, back in June when I think all of us were sort of reopening and readjusting. And so um, we do have people who come back to the office. They usually need a day out of the house to just have safe space to live stream, to record, you know, maybe they have kids at the house or they have a busy household. Um, so, you know, it's definitely been slower, but we also, mm-hmm. you know, we expect that until we get through this pandemic. So uh, how do you handle that when, when people do come in? How do you keep that social distancing? Do you require masks? Uh, what all do you do? Yeah. So when you walk into our building, ma- a mask is, is required to enter. And that's been the case since before it became a mandate, we we knew our landlord started implementing that right away. And masks and social distancing actually work. We've been open since June and have had no incidences. We also mm-hmm. require health screening. So similar to a restaurant, we actually have QR codes up so that you just scan it, fill out a health form. Um, and most of our members, because you are a member, you sign a contract with us, you are a part of a community, they treat it like their home. They they treat it with respect. It's not a public space um, like grocery shopping or or a grocery store. And so everyone follows the rules and we enforce the rules. We have managers on staff that monitor that and make sure everybody is following rules and also kind of clean and can manage the space regularly where I think that's a challenge with normal offices. You don't have that facilities team usually to help manage all of that. And then uh, when, uh, how many, do you have a limit on how many people can be in there at any given time or not? We monitor it. We haven't, we never have more than a handful of people across all the floors right now. Um, mm-hmm. Most people who used to come into an office every day now come in once a week. Um, so mm-hmm. it's been, it's been very scattered and, and slow, which is good and safe. And, you know, we used to host a lot of busy events. We don't host any events in person anymore. We do that all virtually to support mm-hmm. people. So if you are working from home or you are taking that one day a week to come in, you're still connected to community to grants, to resources. Um, we do that through our, our newsletter to our members that goes out every week and our virtual events, um, coffee hours, all kinds of things to keep people still connected no matter where they are. So talk a little bit about the new location in Royal Oak, if you would. I know you you had, now have you always been in the same location in Detroit or have you moved around some? I seem to remember moving around a bit. So. Yeah, we did start in one building and then expanded and moved to another. Um, but we've not yet expanded outside of Detroit. So we're very excited. Part of Bamboo's mission is to really unite and move our region forward. And so we see ourselves playing a role by opening more spaces in Metro Detroit. And our first one will be in downtown Royal Oak. We're right on Main Street, 220 South Main. It's the old historic uh, furniture building, Bright Ideas, mm-hmm. um, that we were able to purchase and renovate uh, so going from retail to modern co-working space. So we're very excited. And that sort of kicked off um, during COVID. <laughs> the construction kicked off right during COVID. Um, was paused and then restarted. And 
Now we're looking forward to opening at the beginning of next year. But what makes that building really cool is that it has this uh, really awesome statement staircase um, that connects all three floors. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's going to be really good. And, you know, we've learned a lot about how to make office space safe during COVID. And so we'll be opening with all of those procedures and policies and designed a little bit more privacy um, and more distance between everything and the new location. So how many square feet is it total? It's about 20,000 square feet. Just like the one downtown then, huh? Yeah, just just like our one downtown. Yep. Okay. And, and what street is that on in downtown Roanoke? We're right at uh, Main Street. Main 220 Street. 220 South Main. Oh, okay. Between um, second and third then. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, right, right. between second and third. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a so very be busy down area. by the, uh, the Starbucks, somewhere in that area, right? We're right across from a Starbucks and Atomic Coffee, which is my favorite. And then there's a parking garage right behind us. Right. But we chose we chose Royal Oak because we knew it was so central to a lot of the suburban areas and still has a lot of great amenities that tech companies and growing companies want, like a walkable downtown and, you know, easy parking and um, like a nice prime area to attract talent. Um, and so we are seeing people from all over the suburbs interested in that kind of location. And you got a gazillion apartment complexes around there too. Um, those high rise complexes. When I lived in Royal Oak a long time ago, and none of those were there. So it's amazing how cha- how much Royal Oak has changed over the few years here now. So yeah, That's we're really looking for oh, Oops, go ahead. No, I was, I, I was just. I was just. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> we're looking forward to being a part of the community. <laughs> yes. Okay. Good. So tell me what kind of companies you've been attracting lately to Bamboo Detroit. Um, what what industries are represented and, uh, you know, who are these folks? Yeah, it's interesting. Since reopening, I would say we're definitely seeing an uptick in startup companies. So people who maybe got laid off or had been consulting or just transitioning to starting a new venture. Um, so we've seen a variety of new companies forming and a co-working space, whether you're getting a virtual office or um, a physical presence, you get your mail address here and can access everything and get started. Um, and like a trend towards wellness. So we've had a lot of mental wellness, um, even like a wellness platform starting up here. And I think some of that comes from this direct impact to COVID, um, which is really interesting. So I'm curious to see what kinds of companies we're going to see start up um, after we exit this pandemic. All right, we got about two minutes left. So, uh, any uh, on pricing and stuff, are, are you going to send folks to the website for them to check it out, or what do you want to do? Yeah, I would just say if you want to learn about the amenities in the building, um, go to bamboorealoak.com. But for anything, anyone listening, if you want to just get connected to a business community, um, please check out our website, our events. They're open, you're welcome to join. We have a really cool food innovation panel Wednesday night with Ford. Um, that we're excited about. So there are ways to still stay connected and networking, um, whether you're at home or looking to return to an office soon. So um, we hope to help you. Okay. Uh, one more time, give us that website address now for both of the locations because some people want maybe want to work in Detroit. Yeah, and they'll be connected. So if you oh, sign up oh. for one, you get access to all of them. But bamboorealoak.com and bamboodetroit.com. Okay. okay. Thanks very much, Amanda Luan of uh, Bamboo Detroit, now in Royal Oak as well as in Detroit. We'll be back in just a minute with another 
segment of the M Squared Tech Cast. For right now, it's Matt Rausch and Mike Brennan. And you're watching MITechnews.tv. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. As a Lawrence Technological University graduate, you're not only marketable, you're worth more. Yes, more. According to Payscale.com, when it comes to graduate salaries, LTU is in America's top 100. Be invaluable. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Hey, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And we're back with another segment of the M Squared TechCast with a former colleague of Mr. Brennan's. I'll let him handle the introductions. Yes, from the land of enchantment, New Mexico, we have Rachel Conrad. <laughs> Uh, Rachel and I uh, worked together at the Free Press back in the 90s. That's hard to believe. Um, and uh, then uh, I was doing the auto beat, and then they switched me back to tech, and then she took over the auto beat and got all the good trips to Germany when, when Daimler was buying Chrysler, right? Oh, well, you know, yeah. those things yeah. happen. But anyway, so since then, gosh, you... But you're I, not bitter about it at all, I can tell. I know, I'm not <laughs> jealous at all. I just, you know... Um, so then she went uh, to AP in San Francisco, where she met her current husband. Uh, well, the only husband, I should say. Uh, <laughs> he's probably listening, right? Uh, I was going to say, you might have just made him a little nervous. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then uh, from there, you went. You and Elon Musk got to know each other at Tesla. Wow. Right? Okay, cool. And you were, you were the, I think, the first PR person at Tesla, weren't you? I'm not sure I was the first, but I was definitely the only one while I was there. Um, it was it was a pretty uh, pretty interesting time. This was 2008. You probably remember Carmageddon, right? Oh, uh, yeah. This was when two of the big three were filing for bankruptcy. Um, mm-hmm. It was incredibly lean times, and uh, yeah, we were out in California trying to start a crazy zero emission car company um, built, you know, with a car built on a Lotus chassis. It was pretty interesting time. Um, Elon now looks back at that era and said he was going through a like, you know, breakdown of sorts. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty interesting time for all of us, I would say. Yeah. Uh, then from there, uh, the, the saga continues and you took over worldwide communications in Paris, no doubt, for the uh, the alliance with Nissan, Renault and Peugeot. And no, just to be, Renault fun- and Nissan at the time. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's, right. it's since expanded to Mitsubishi. But yeah. Yep. And then uh, you did that for five years and then that expat thing came in where they get double taxation. So <laughs> I, I know all your personal stuff. He's so, really going uh, deep. Yeah. And then you were, <laughs> th- then you were recruited for your current job with Impossible Foods. I, the CEO came to you and was it in Paris he came to you? Well, we actually met there. So I, at the time, I, I started working for Carlos Ghosn in 2011. Um, I, I moved to Paris. It was amazing. And I had been doing um, doing that for about four and a half years. And Nissan at the time was the largest single producer of electric vehicles. And so we were sponsoring COP21, the big United Nations conference on the environment. 
And we had a huge presence. We had fleets of Nissan Leafs and Renault Zoe's and everything else um, shuttling around all of the dignitaries. And, you know, I happened to meet this guy during COP21 um, who was talking about how actually, you know, what you drive is much less significant than what you eat when it comes to making a positive impact on the environment. And he said that and it was kind of like, huh, you know, it made me really think it made me really honestly question the past you know, 10 years working in the automotive industry, maybe, maybe I had picked the wrong focus. Maybe I, maybe I need to go into food. And that guy was a man named uh, Dr. Pat Brown. He uh, had just, he had founded a company called Impossible Foods. And the more I started researching it, the more I realized he's right. You know, I've spent so I'm, I'm from Detroit, as Mike knows, uh, born in Detroit, grew up in Gross Point, And um, I'm a huge student of an enthusiast of the auto industry, right? Uh, you know, my dad worked for Chrysler for 25 years that Chrysler, you know, basically footed the bill for my college education and everything else. And, um, so it was pretty, uh, shocking to think that maybe as an environmentalist, I had focused my, my, my time and resources in the wrong industry, and, and sure enough, the more I looked into it, the more I realized, huh, you know, it, it's almost like you could be a um, meat eater who drives a uh, Prius or a Tesla, and you probably have a bigger total carbon footprint than a plant-based, you know, vegan eater who drives a Cadillac Escalade. And that really kind of made me go into, I would almost call it like a mid-career um, crisis. You know, crisis. Yeah. Yes, so yeah. I got out, I moved 6,000 miles away, moved back to California um, and, and started working for, for this company, which at the time hadn't even launched its product. So, yeah. And, and now uh, if you go to Burger King, you can get the impossible Whopper of what, 8,000 Burger Kings. Uh and I had the, she, I, I, her and I are really good friends. We've known each other for 30 years. <laughs> so she was back in town a number of years ago. I can't remember when it was, but introducing all of us to the impossible burger where we went to your mother's house yes. and you cooked up a bunch of burgers and whatnot. And this and, was like uh, early, early time prototype. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I'm not doing a testimonial here, but literally I couldn't tell the difference. Yeah. Now, when I first started eating them, at, I told you this, when I first started eating them at Burger King, they just cooked the hell out of them. And they were all dried out. So I think yeah. so I stopped eating them for a while, but now I've gone back and they must have got that under control. It tastes a lot better. So they also have, you know, I, one of my absolute favorite ways to eat the impossible burger is the impossible slider at White Castle. Uh, they they do a great job. And, you know, you, you probably know this about Burger King. They um, they cook everything on a flame broiler. Right. So so everything goes through um, the flame broiler at the same pace, whereas um, at uh, White Castle, they make them right there, hot, hot to order on a separate grill. And, you know, there's someone back there cooking them and, and they'll get them to you. Um, however, however you ask. There are also some places like Cheesecake Factory and Red Robin and others that will actually ask you, do you want that rare, medium rare, you know, well, medium? So you can you can get it any way you want. But now you need to just go buy it, buy it at Kroger. You can get it at Kroger, Trader Joe's, Walmart, Target, a huh. lot of places. And then you can cook it at home. And you cook it exactly the same way you cook ground beef from cows. Just you know, throw it in your 
lasagna, your ch- chili, whatever, whatever you want, not just burgers. So you can go well beyond burgers um, and cook it mm-hmm. at home. It's really fun. Okay. So, so what, what has been sort of the evolution of this in terms of other products? Are you, are you getting into other products besides just burger now? Yeah, absolutely. So make no mistake. The goal of this company is to um, replace every animal that is currently in the food system. So you're talking steak, chicken, fish, milk, everything. Um, We launched with ground beef because that is uh, because cows are far and away the most destructive animal um, on the planet, like the most dangerous invasive species on the planet is actually uh, not the murder hornet. It's the, it's the cow. And, um, and, and so that's why we started there and about half of all the ground, all of the, the, um, you know, beef in America is sold as ground beef. So it made a, made sense to start there, but we've also just launched the earlier this year, impossible sausage. Um, you can get that at any Starbucks, by the way, um, in the impossible breakfast sandwich. It's, it's really good. Um, and our intention is, like I said, to develop a full range of, of products. So, you know, you can have impossible pork and milk and chicken and fish and everything else. So well, I remember, I remember way back when, this was back in the early 2000s when they dedicated the next energy center in Detroit. <clears throat> they had a, a Coney dog line there, you know, because they wanted to do all Detroit foods. And they had uh, vegan hot dogs. Yeah, and, interesting. You know, and, and there's absolutely nothing natural about a hot dog anyway, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. it's all pumped full of artificial color and artificial flavorings and, you know, food yeah. coloring and all that stuff. So, and when you boiled it and then put coney sauce on it and onions and mustard, I couldn't tell the difference. Yeah. You know, and that no, was we, even back then. That was, yeah, that was a long time ago. It, it's true. I mean, that, that said, you know, we don't want to make products that are just good, good enough for vegans or vegetarians. Like that's a very low bar, to be honest. Um, and frankly, vegans and vegetarians, they're only about 3% of the, the, the U.S. and the world market. They're already doing the right thing by way of the environment, right? Like they're already eating with a low carbon footprint. So if everyone were already doing that, this company would not exist. I might hopefully be back in Paris, you know, um, maybe not working for Carlos Ghosn, uh, but but well, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> maybe I'd be back in Detroit. I, I love Mary Barra, you know, um, but um, but yeah, I mean, we are really trying to satisfy the hardcore carnivore, the hardcore meat lover, you know, the person who eats meat from animals a couple of times a day who just can't even imagine his or her life without that pleasure. Um, that's a really high bar. And so we actually, you know, we don't market, I don't communicate to vegans and vegetarians. It's really all about converting the true carnivore. Cause that's the person who needs, who, you know, who, who, who needs, needs something better, both for the planet, but also, you know, zero cholesterol, zero antibiotics, zero hormones, zero trans fat. Um, you know, they're looking, they're looking for the, the change. So what is the technology behind Impossible Burger? I mean, it's it, when you tell people you've got a plant-based meat product, they all think of all that stuff that we had a long time ago that tastes like cardboard. Yes. So how, how do you put, what's the technology behind that? Well, uh, let me get to the technology in one second. Let me just tell you that the, that sentiment that you just expressed, um, I call it plant-based anxiety. I ripped that from range anxiety from uh, my uh-huh. 2008 days at Tesla. 
Um, and, and it is, it's a true thing, you know, it is probably the number one challenge that I and the, you know, marketing and sales teams face at impossible foods is this idea that from with a lot of people about two thirds of Americans, by the way, have what I, we call plant-based anxiety or plant-based skepticism. And what that means is basically just like you said, Mike, you know, uh, back in 1997, you were at a frat house barbecue. And at the time your crazy vegan girlfriend brought you some Boca burger, some quinoa sprout sticking out of that thing and you ate it and it sucked. Okay. And you will never eat plant-based food again. Technical That's term, by the way. So, yeah, yes, yeah. Yeah. but it's it's a real thing, and so you have to get over that. Um, you have to try Impossible because it truly is a very different product from the other, you know, the the veggie burgers of your right. Um, and let me tell you why. So, Pat Brown uh, was a 25 year biochemistry professor at Stanford. Um, you know, he he knew quite a bit about uh, virology, epidemiology, biochemistry, and um, he had this hunch that the reason why um, animal meat tasted the way it did so, so craveable, so unique in our diets. It was because of the high concentrations of a molecule called heme. And heme is basically this oxygen carrying molecule. It's what makes your cheeks red and your lips red. Um, it's found in very high concentrations in mammal muscle because that's, you need a lot of oxygen in your muscle, right? And, um, and so he said, wow, if we can just, heme is found in everything. It's literally, you know, ubiquitous. You already eat heme, you know, billions of times a day um, in, in anything you eat, whether it's broccoli or lentils or uh, meat, um, but it's found in very high concentrations in mammal muscle, AKA meat. And so he said, why don't we take the heme that's already naturally found in other, other things that we eat and then um, add that to a, you know, convincing um, reverse engineered recreation of, in our case, the burger itself. Um, and so that's really the secret sauce is the heme that we use to, um, to, to make our product. And um, we're the only ones who do that. Um, that's why the Impossible Burger really performs very differently than any other um, product on the market. It, it, other than ground beef itself, it is really, really um, comparable. And a lot of people, frankly, even like our product more than ground beef, you know, than old, old meat from animals, because we don't put in a lot of stuff that you, you might not want. You know, there's this, there's kind of this, this fantasy mythology that's like, oh, beef, it's just perfect. Actually, when you drill down, there's a lot people don't like about it. They obviously don't like the cholesterol, the hormones, the antibiotics. They don't like the gristle. They don't like the fact that you have to be precise about cooking it or you're exposing you and your family to risk of foodborne illnesses. They also don't like the fact that it has that it comes from an animal, frankly. You know, like you, you Mike, you have, you know, your your daughter at at, at some point. When, but so, somewhere between the ages of about six and 12, virtually every kid goes through this period where they're like, wait, d chicken McNugget is Big Bird? Wait, you know, this hot dog is a pig or Bessie the cow or whatever. They hate that. And as a civilization, we've kind of like, no, don't don't think about that, honey. Just keep eating. Right. And it tastes so good that you you want to just believe it. Like you don't want to think about where I, it comes I, from. I, right. I but you don't like it. it. 
I still remember the time I went to a pig roast at a pig farm and the pigs were looking at us. Yeah, that was that was a little disconcerting. Yeah. So <laughs> we basically, we take all of that out. We don't we don't have the animal in it, um, but we yeah. give you all the taste and the nutrition, too. All right, all right we're going to unfortunately have to leave it at that. This is a great conversation, but we're running out of time. Now, if folks want to find out more about Impossible Foods, uh, what's the website address? I'm assuming Just, it's the same name, right? Yep, impossiblefoods.com. And again, you can get it at, um, at you know, Kroger, uh, Trader Joe's, Target, Walmart, wherever you wherever you shop, it's usually in the meat aisle. So just just look for the package right next to your uh, favorite ground beef from cows. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, Detroit native Rachel Conrad, now head of communications for Impossible Foods. I thought you guys would talk a lot more. You'd want like dirt. You know, Mike, I thought he'd want dirt about, you know, Carlos Ghosn and Elon Musk. Well, I was going to ask you when you're going to write that screenplay. And, the, and you got them both. You got Elon Musk and you got Carlos Ghosn, yeah. the most powerful man in the world. With And Ghosn's story, my God, you know, it's fascinating. Like, I mean, oh, it's read, I don't know if it's all true, but it's it's like a spy novel kind of thing, you know? Well, yeah. I've always told everyone, never discount that man. He is prodigious intellect. Um, yeah, I'm I'm actually really happy that he evaded um, the f- sort of scam justice system in Japan on that one. Yeah, okay. Yeah. To be continued, we'll have to get you all back. Right, yeah, then we'll, please, then we'll ask those stories about, we'll about guys. that next time. Maybe we can. Yes, we can. We can make. We can make the impossible meat the side dish and uh, put Carlos. Go I do. I want to see you guys eating it while we're talking. Like okay. that's the thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. I'm gonna. I'm honest to God. I just made a. Uh, I just made a big pot of chili over the weekend. The next oh, time I make a big pot of chili, yeah. I'm gonna try it. So. Oh, it's great. Yeah. All right. Thanks very much, Rachel. And we'll be right, back thanks, in just Rachel. a minute with another segment. Good luck in New Mexico there. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics, and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Hey, it's Matt Roush. And Mike Brennan. And we're back with our weekly visit from Fred Brown, our very own infectious disease expert here at the M Squared TechCast. Fred, good afternoon. And what's the story? What's going on right now in the world of uh, the coronavirus? Well, uh, gosh, my, my life just got a lot easier because they opened up to the Moderna safety uh, and, and, and efficacy data uh, today. And uh, huge. That was really good news, it looks like. Yeah, I was watching the morning news reports, and it was everywhere. That's uh, you know, everyone jumped on that, you know. So, well, I'll tell you, you know, we we've been working on the Pfizer uh, vaccine to try to make sure we can we can distribute it. And Pfizer has a very challenging cold chain requirement. I think we talked about it before minus seven degrees centigrade, it's minus ninety four degrees Fahrenheit, uh, and we have 
very few capabilities to transport that any distance, uh, let alone to the facilities. Uh, if you look at the, you know, what, what a drugstore would have in, in its facility, even a teaching hospital has that facility, it may have one minus 70 degrees uh, centigrade uh, freezer to, to work with you know, stem cells and things like that. But uh, the, the, these freezers are, are, are challenging to get. And to you know, make sure that everything stays cold that long before it even gets to the freezer is really uh, is really a challenge. And so Moderna is different; it only has a, a cold chain requirement of minus twenty, and that is significant because um, we we you do that with dry ice, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, we do have a slight dry ice uh, shortage, <laughs> sadly. Oh, believe it or not, one of our things that are constrained, we don't have enough, enough, enough yeah, dry ice. Yeah, I thought we had but... plenty of carbon dioxide. I thought we had too much of it, in fact. <laughs> so so yeah. is, that, is that minus 20 Fahrenheit or centigrade? Centigrade. Wow, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's like that... 10 below Fahrenheit then. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it turns out these, these, these this is, we're, we're dealing with messenger RNA, and, and these things are incredibly fragile, right? The DNA uh, double helix, the reason it was so hard to even figure out what that looked like is because uh, we didn't even anticipate that Van der Waals forces were going to, you know, pull something together that was that that, that was that significant to hu- human existence. So we can't, you know, when Luke Watson and Crick, when they constantly kind of looked at the, the double helix structure, we didn't think that was really even viable. But in fact, at biological system, it's sort of nice. It just barely holds together. And then it, it is able to open up re- and replicate, which makes it all work. Uh, uh, but the problem with that is that if you're trying to actually transport this stuff, <laughs> it's that fragile, right? I mean, it's just barely getting, getting held together, and then you're trying to transport it. And so what we do is we freeze it, and we freeze it at, at oh, they go ultra low or even at even cryo levels. Cryo levels minus 170, at ultra low is minus 70, and at that point, uh, you know, it, it stabilizes, and so we can transport. It. Otherwise, if it gets exposed, you know, it just it just it completely sort of crumbles up and the efficacy of the vaccine just dissolves uh, literally uh, and figuratively. So that, that's why we have this ultrasound ultra cold chain. But I, I did run a couple of numbers for you guys. If you're interested, I can, I can show you or, or we can talk sure. about other things, whatever, whatever you'd like. You know, I, oh, sounds great. Let's, I mean, let's, yeah, let's I, I alerted charts. people you were going to be coming on the show talking about this uh, this afternoon. So people are watching to get your opinion yeah. of what they came up with. So I, I ran the numbers of Pfizer. In order to run these models, it takes quite a bit of work. And so um, I, 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 um, we actually we actually ran uh, Monte Carlo simulations, uh, and from that, I'll, I'll show you kind of what that came out with uh, uh, with with Pfizer numbers that are minor, that are ninety percent effective. Now, when you have something that is ninety four point five percent effective, you'll see it doesn't make. Uh, that big a difference in terms of the population level, but it could make a difference for you at an individual level. So let's take a look at that. Uh, and that is, um, you know, the point is you were over 50%, we're over 60%, we're over 70%, we're over 80%, we're over 90%. It's, uh, it's just remarkable. To give you a sense is I've, I've worked in this space for 40 years. I, I've never worked on a, on a vaccine uh, with the exception of mumps that, that, that was, uh, you know, at this level of efficacy. Uh, mm. It's just very, very rare that you get this much. Uh, and, 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 and the reason for that, you know, as you know, I was looking at, at three scenarios. The first scenario I was looking at, I'll, I'll show you what I was looking at. Um, uh, I'll share my screen. Well, the other thing is the focus group for this Bedura vaccine was like 30,000 people or something, right? Yep. As, as for Pfizer, Pfizer also had about 37,000 people total. Okay. Uh, now, the difference was that they revealed a little bit more of what they found and that. And I'll, the significance is is huge. Um, Pfizer said, you know, we had 94 patients and uh, of them, uh, we had 99%, which means you could be, you could be at a, at a point where, uh, 
you had, uh, say, you know, that, that means you had, you had to have uh, more than, I think, 86 or 87, 86 in the cohort group, right? So 86 and, and 8 would have added up 94. Uh, so what they did is they, you know, you, you vaccinate 37,000 people, uh, in this case, and then they, they let them go out into the world. Uh, and then you see whether they come come down with something. And as soon as someone says, oh, I feel a little bit sick, I'm going to go get myself tested, they go, fine, what, what was the test result? They say, yes, then you then they say, they, they score you and say, oh, so this person had a, had a, uh, had a, had a, uh, 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 an illness. And then, uh, the, but you don't know whether that person was the vaccinated group or the placebo group, right? You don't know that yet. And then when the, when the FDA takes a look at it, when you actually do the analysis, this is an interim analysis. Only the FDA looked, looked at it, not 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 the company. They they said, "Wow, it turns out that of the ninety four people, um, only six of those people were people who had been vaccinated, and we have eighty eight who were not vaccinated, and they got the disease. Hmm. That's a huge out, out output, right? What they didn't tell you though is how severe the illness was." And that's something that we really look at carefully because that really changes the de- death rate and changes how much hospitalization you need. So if you vaccinate people and they get less severely ill, that's a huge endpoint. And Moderna, Pfizer didn't mention that. Uh, you know, so how many people got severely ill? Moderna said of the people they tested, eleven of them in their uh, in their group were became severely ill. When they looked at those eleven, they were all the people who had not gotten the vaccine. Hmm. And that is really good news. So uh, I, I did the work for Pfizer because I had the data for Pfizer. I didn't know what, what, the, what the result was going to be for Moderna. It's great news that it's similar. So it's going to be similar to this data. Um, and so let me show you what I got. And uh, yeah, maybe maybe I think people might be interested. So uh, let me show you what I got. Um, I'll share the screen. And uh, I, I'll try to go through pretty quick because this takes a long time. To, unfortunately, this takes a long time to explain. We may, we may have to have another session so that people, you know, understand it. Um, but uh, I was I was following, as you know, you know, three basic scenarios. The first scenario was get lucky. And that meant that we, we were counting on a vaccine. And, the va- and, the, and basically, the United States followed the strategy. They said, we're going to get a vaccine. We don't have to worry about anything else. Uh, and, and as a result, we have huge, huge illnesses. And it was a huge bet. Um, and but if you if you win on the bet, you don't have as many deaths. You're able to open more quickly. You're able to have a v, the V shaped recovery. Uh, and initially, when, in April, I was I was skeptical because I've done a lot of uh, vaccination. Uh, I've I've done a lot of vaccine development work in my career, uh, and it you know it's you don't want to count on a getting lucky scenario. It's fine if you kind of make a bet and you say, oh, you know, if I win the lottery, I'm going to retire next year, but I better keep working just in case, you know, <laughs> we didn't keep working. We just said, we're going to go for, we're going to go for the vaccine. Uh, we're going to go for the lottery win. And you know what? I think we're going to, now you can see, I went from 20% chance of that happening to a 70% chance. In it. And now with Moderna, I, I think, I think maybe as high as 90% chance, we're going to have two vaccines uh, in about, Despite about December twentieth, December twenty, kind of around Christmas. Uh, well, that'd be a available. nice Christmas present, huh? I mean, oh, I'll tell you, it solves so many problems for me. I can't. I'm so excited about this. I can't tell you because what happens now is that before I was having to deal with Pfizer, 
very difficult cold chain, single manufacturer. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. We're not sure about all the results. Now we got two indications that things are working and two options, one of which is a little bit easier to, man- to manage. So this, this just, I'll tell you, I slept for the first time well in a long time. Uh, I'll do that for the first time well in a long time. Uh, I did say we should continue to try to play the marathon, and you'll see why. Uh, in, a, in a little while. And I did say that Brutal was going to be, a, a, you know, that's not, that's really not what you want to go for. I think a lot of uh, states fell into that inadvertently. They kind of said, well, well, we'll wait for the vaccine. We'll wait for the, you know, and ultimately they started to realize, wow, we're, we're having a lot of deaths and maybe we'll get to a point where they have so many illnesses that we'll be able to uh, have and prevent the infection. Well, um, that, 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 go, that, that pushes you too far when you do the math. You don't want to have that scenario. Um, but sometimes you fall into it because you pursue the, the get lucky strategy and you and you don't and you don't hit the, the get lucky strategy. That's like you know playing the lottery, not hitting it, having gone on you know having then having challenges getting back into the employment range. So at any rate, that that's that's where I was what I was looking at, and it the the reason I didn't predict this, I knew it was possible, but I didn't predict it was because you had to actually predict a revolution in science, uh, and you know. You don't really want to count on that. But I think right now we are actually in a revolution of science. Uh, and and uh, let me show you the this slide in, in better detail here. Um, and basically, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a period of time where we actually have synthetic vaccine capabilities. What that means is you actually, uh, you actually uh, have the ability of a bacteria or a virus to infect your own body and control it. Uh, and then allow that disease to become present at a certain level, at least antigens to that disease, not the disease itself, at a certain level, which causes you then to create defense mechanisms that are permanent. And, you know, just think about that, right? And that is just awesome technology. When we saw we harnessed the atom in the 1940s, you know, we, we conquered space. This is really kind of demonstrating that at scale. And the, and the uh, it, it, uh, one benefit, I, I mean, if, if there's any benefit of a coronavirus like this, is that we, for the first time, we, we knew about this te- technology with three, you know, kind of at doses of 3,000 people with Ebola or 2,000 or several hundred people with very rare diseases. We've done, and, and right now today we do some, we do some gene therapy work. We're talking about, you know, Drugs that cost two hundred thousand dollars a piece and and and, and uh, a dose, and you, you take it at once and you're cured from from disease. But we're only manufacturing like four hundred doses a year of this stuff. So this is the first time where we said, let's try it for a billion people, <laughs> right? And we're gonna we're gonna actually pull this off, which is shocking. And well, we'll talk about some of the challenges that remain. There's still some challenges that remain. But today, I'd just like to talk about how amazing this is. Uh, and what that means is, it, it, and it goes beyond vaccines. This is something we've been working on for cancer. It's something we've been working on for antibiotics, for protein deficiencies, for carbohydrate deficiencies, for genetic disease. I mean, this is really a fundamental shift in our ability. And 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 um, because we were so, under so much pressure, the regulators shifted their uh, oversight of this as well simultaneously, which really allowed us to get unprecedented uh, results. Um, so what, what this bet was, was that three things. Number one, we can completely change the sweet spot of vaccine development and what, what we what we're able to discover and use. We completely change the process by which we select those compounds. And that, by the way, we're going to change the entire regulatory process as well. So uh, I can show you that or I can show you what some of the results are. What would you like to see? Some of the results or or the models? Well, yeah, so the, uh, well, uh, here, here's so... 
if you're, I think, have I shown you this? I think I have shown you this. So let, let me tell you about the, the some of the models. Yep. So we've got these great, this, we've got this great vaccine, right? Mm-hmm. The question is, how great is it? And they're yeah, four. This dimensions. one you showed us last week. So I showed yeah. you this. So yeah. Yeah. let's take a look at these four dimensions, right? Safety, efficacy, scalability, durability. I have some some new, some new thoughts about this. We've run some numbers. So there are two kinds of ways. Uh, a vaccine can be effective, right? And you've just heard them say, we're 90% effective. But what they didn't tell you is it really matters what that endpoint of efficacy means. And there are a lot of different endpoints of efficacy. So on the bottom of the slide, it says reduce mild symptoms, reduce severe symptoms, reduce the length of disease and transmission, reduce the length of general transmission, right? That's that's a spectrum of efficacy. And, And Pfizer could be telling the truth, and have something that really isn't very helpful to us, and or, or, or it could be revolutionary. And it really matters what you're testing for. Right now, we are testing for reducing mild symptoms. And the reason I say that is because Pfizer and Amoderna, and in fact, every vaccine in development uh, right now is only asking people, so, you know, do you have a va- do you have any kind of symptom? If you have any kind of symptom, and in, and in some cases they say, well, you have to have two of these, and you have to have at least a cough and a fever. You have a cough and a fever, that's enough. You go to the hospital, you get checked out, we'll take a test, we'll see whether you got COVID. That's a pretty mild symptom, you know? Or if you lose your tense of taste and... and uh, now, if you're talking about fainting and not having enough blood supply uh, to, to, to vital organs and, you're, and, you're, and, you're, and your lips are turning purple, that's a different level of saying, okay, you come to the hospital and get tested, right? Um, and if you're stopping that kind of a symptom, that's a very different kind of clinical endpoint, clinical test, than just saying, I got a, I got a case of the sniffles. So that's the fundamental difference of an endpoint. And then you can start to check whether or not that endpoint has been achieved or not. So suppose our endpoint, in this case, it's not, it's not the case, but if it's, let's make it simple, right? If our endpoint we chose was we want to have at least a 50% impact, which, is what the, what, which was what we said we wanted. At least 50%, the FDA said, you have that, you can get, we'll, we'll, we'll approve you. So suppose you have two things you're looking at. One is straight of transmission, and the other is, uh, is, is, is whether you're reducing death rate. If your RT, that's the rate of transmission, is three, then after 10 generations, you're going to have about 100,000 uh, uh, infections from one infection. That's a lot of people you can infect <laughs> in 10 generations. <laughs> Over the course of a few weeks, right? Now, if you then reduce the death rate through your vaccine from, a, from, from say, um, and you have a 1% death rate to a 0.5% death rate, then that means you're going to have 1,000 a, a deaths, right? 100,000 people of that 1% die. 1,000 people die. I reduce that by 50%. Now I'm down to 500 deaths, right? That's a 50% reduction, which is a great outcome. But if I had tested for something else, if I'd actually looked at reproductive rate, and not looked at it, and not been so interested in fatality rates. Suppose we have an R, that's the reproductive rate of three. After ten generations, you got hundred thousand again. Now, if R reduces to, to by fifty percent to one point five, and you do all the math, you only have two thousand eight hundred infections hmm. after ten generations. Just think about how impactful that is, right? Because you're not, you're just not reproducing as fast. Then, if you keep the same level of a, a fatality rate, right? You didn't look at fatality rate. You're still at one percent. All of a sudden, you've gone from a thousand deaths to just twenty-eight deaths, right? Wow, that's a ninety-seven percent reduction in the in the disease. So that's the difference between a clinical endpoint that says I'm going to go after you know symptomologic uh, uh, kind of effect 
versus I'm going to go right after the virus itself. I'm going to find, I, I, I'm not going to let that virus get to anybody else anymore. I'm going to kill it. And that, that that's, you know, one thing helps us live longer. The other thing, and then it stops hospitals from filling up, it, it, it really reduces the impact on our health system. The other fundamentally affects the virus because they can't find anywhere else to go anymore. So that, that's a, uh, that that so endpoints are important. So w- watch for that. Watch for that. And right now, sadly, all you're going to find is okay. We were able to reduce mild, mild symptoms. That's all they tested for. So it's going to take us some time uh, and additional testing, and we'll find it out eventually. Uh, about to find out what the actual impact uh, on these uh, on, on transmission was, and whether you're uh, really impacting the the the, uh, the super severe symptoms or not. It turns out that if you only in, if you only affect uh, transmission, uh, I'm sorry. If you only say cure the sniffles and transmission doesn't decline, it could be that you're actually going to increase the amount of virus you've got, right? Because no one's going to go get treated for it. No one's going to get, no one's going to stop. And I actually, all I got is a sniffle. I'm going to go out to the, my, my, I'm going to out, out to the bar and have a good time. You could actually start having more and more of this virus in place, allowing more and more mutations to occur, and maybe finding you, you eventually get to a superbug. The other issue that we look for in this space is, is antibody enhancement, where you actually, um, uh, the vaccine actually encourages is encouraged uh, by the immune system to re- re- uh, to reproduce, and we were looking for that quite carefully, um, and and uh, we actually stopped a trial because we thought we had a, an enhancement, uh, and we'll get into that in a second. So, th- does that make sense about efficacy? That's yeah. uh, and here's what happened. So, not, let's run some numbers. You know, we we run the models. These are very advanced models. Uh, they're 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 just out. I just did it. I just did it myself, um, I, and I simplified it a little bit because now it's still confidential. But basically, um, what we said was we're right now uh, at closing in on fifteen hundred uh, cases a day. I'm sorry, deaths a day. Uh, uh, you know, we were between a thousand and fifteen hundred deaths. We probably will increase that to slightly over three thousand deaths per day uh, by uh, mm-hmm. January fifteenth or so. Wow. That's a shame. I mean, that's, that's how bad it's going to be. Uh, it's going to get bad. Now, the, the only thing that doesn't cause it to go to seven or 8,000 is because we think we have, we're think we going to have enough hospital beds if we act fast. I think we will. But if we, if we don't, if we don't have a hospital bed, you're talking about double that. So hopefully that won't happen on a huge scale. I don't think it will, but it's still a scenario that's possible in a very bad situation. So suppose we go up to 3,000 deaths and we start to march our way down the curve after a while. I think we will. I think we'll have better policy. I think people will start to, after Christmas, people will start to naturally retreat into their, you know, into their homes a little bit more. Uh, and and we're, we're moving down that curve. And we introduce the vaccines as we think we will uh, end of December. The EUA is going to take till the end of December. Uh, and then EUA means emergency use authorization. We'll, 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 we will then, uh, and you can see along the bottom, we're talking about the number of cumulative cases people who've been vaccinated. So along the bottom, we said um, by 421, we'll have 20 million people vaccinated. By 921, we'll have 102 million. By 1121, we'll have 95, 195. And by 422, we'll have uh, 242 million vaccinations. Now, I don't think that we're going to ever get to that level because there are enough people who are against vaccines and holding back and thinking about things before they want to get the vaccine. I don't think we're going to get to 242, but this is just, you know, what, what's theoretically possible. And now that Moderna is also the, in, in the game, we could actually have this timeline. So that's a, a huge change, right? So, so we have Moderna and so, so we have right now, this is just for Pfizer. And you can see what happened. Basically we continue, 20 million isn't that big a percent of the population. So it basically paralyzed the line that we would have without any vaccine at all. And then it starts to, you know, we start to see uh, a bigger separation uh, if we're talking about a re- reduction in 
uh, in 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 um, uh, in um, in transmission by fifty percent versus ninety percent. We're seeing some separation, and then by the believe it or not, if we're able to get to over two hundred twenty thousand vaccinations by you know January February, uh, we could see this. We could see we could hit herd immunity and stop the virus, according to this scenario at a ninety percent effectiveness rate. At a fifty percent effectiveness rate for reduction in transmission, it's going to take another eighteen months. But eventually, we'll still, we'll get down uh, to a, to a level that's that's interesting. So that's uh, that's what's uh, happening there with transmission. Now, suppose we take the scenario where we're actually going to going to re, uh, reduce the symptom, symptoms. So here again, we have the cumulative vaccinated population. This is the speed of OWS rollout predicted. That we're that we're working with now, we're going to change that obviously. But this is for Pfizer, and here you've got you can see that instead of killing off the virus, what happens is you're able to kind of get to about uh, between a third a reduction and 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 two thirds reduction uh, in the overall vaccine uh, and overall death rate. You're, you're moving from you know three thousand deaths to twelve hundred deaths, uh, which is good. Um, and then if you have the vaccine uh, that uh, reduces. 50% reduction, you, you know, you're, you're going to get um, with, with a percentage of uh, uh, about 900 deaths and 481 if a 90% reduction in symptoms. So I hope that makes sense. And you can see it in the curves and about how fast this could go if we roll out as we anticipate with, with, uh, with the under operation warp speed. That's one factor. That's efficacy. So if we have a little bit of time, I'll talk a little bit about, and then there's dosing. In five minutes. Oh, my goodness. Well, why don't we talk about safety next week then? Because safety okay. is a really critical area, and we want to go into that in some detail. Dosing and routes of administration also make a big difference. So dosing, for example, if you're early on, Johnson & Johnson only requires one dose uh, of the vaccine. If it's successful, we don't know what the efficacy is. Uh, we don't know. Uh, it's a different technology. It's adenovirus technology, uh, vector technology, not, not an mRNA technology. What we do there is we actually insert uh, a gene, a piece of the gene that you're interested in, uh, transfecting the, into the human, uh, into uh, a, a viral vector. We take out one the virus that's in the vector, put in the new one that we're interested in, inject it in, and that virus infects. Johnson Johnson only needs one dose versus two doses. So if you're early on and trying to control the, the virus, one dose versus two doses does two things, right? Number one, it gets you immunogenicity, you know, uh, uh, 28 days faster because you only have to have one dose and you're going to get immunogenicity versus having to wait that extra, for that extra dose before you really achieve it. The second thing it does is it doubles your your, your, your capacity, right? Because you're moving from two to one dose to two doses, same, same machine can produce basically uh, in a simplistic way, uh, much more effective dose. So initially, it's very important to have between one dose, two dose. Eventually, the two doses catches up, right? Because you've got enough capacity, you're, you're not constrained, you've got people interested in it. Um, but um, you can see that basically, if you've got a, a two dose system, uh, uh, a, a one dose system, you can reduce sy- symptoms and death rate due to symptoms that are bad if you're able to affect that by 20%, and for transmission blocking, 10 to 20%. Now, the roots of administration also make a big difference because it gives you options. And if you don't, if you have to inject everybody, there's some people who don't like injections and so on, and some children and so on. Um, and so, and it gives you options in terms of the ingredients you're using because some the misters use different ingredients than the injectors do. So it uh, gives you some more options along the supply chain, which is important. But more importantly, it turns out that routes of administration make a difference in how effective a vaccine can be. We have seen uh, misting technology used in animal studies that effectively do get to the lungs 
and, and, and make you much more resistant to the coronavirus if it's trying to attack your lungs, which is important. Upper respiratory tract is one of the two areas, nose and lungs, that really are attacked by the coronavirus initially. So if you can stop the lung part as well as the nose part, you're doing better. Turns out if you push, if you use intramuscular, it's very strong in the nose, but not much in the upper respiratory tract. If you use a mister, uh, we're seeing evidence that we're actually going to get a better overall uh, level of immunogenicity and effectiveness in, 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 in the drug. So with that, why don't we talk about some other things, and we'll come back to the safety issues next week, because safety is really critical for, for vaccines when you're going to take them. And I hope this helps it helps people decide which vaccine they're going to take. I hope pe- uh, people will, will look at this as the real transformation that it is. The reason that this thing went so fast is not because we, went, we, we cut corners. It's because we're looking at a revolution. It's the difference between you know trying to get through the air space. Suppose you're trying to move, fly from, uh, from, from Washington, D.C., to, to London. Well, now we have a jet plane. We don't have to use propellers anymore, and it's that much faster. Initially, people said, gosh, that's too dangerous. Uh, you know, I don't want to get to London in less than, less than t- 10 hours. It just it seems too fast to me. This is the same sort of thing. We're talking about a revolution in the technology, which allows a revolution in the speed at which we're able to develop the drug. With that, about two, two minutes left. Let's talk real quick about, <clears throat> excuse me, Governor Whitmer. Yes, absolutely. On Wednesday, we go into this sort of semi-lockdown with some restrictions, or a lot of restrictions, actually. And I think what she's trying to do is not make sure people don't have a big Thanksgiving feast with everybody there and driving in and flying in and all that jazz. Uh, so then we'd have a super spreader event. So uh, what are you thinking on that? Is that a good idea? Yeah, I, you know, um, I, it, it is. I think I think it is. We're, we're, what, what's happening is I told you last time we're getting to a doubling rate that's pretty dangerous. And the problem is that you think it doesn't look too dangerous, and uh, but that don't forget the death rates take five weeks to develop. So what we're seeing in cases right now, you won't see in death rate for another five, six weeks. Hmm. Uh, and so she sees that, and she's using an early warning indicator to say, you know, we're on exponential curve. The cases are going to go up. And, and she's right. Now, as you know, I don't, I don't consult to her. I, I consult to a lot of other states, but sadly not Michigan. But I think what she did, I, I put her in literally, you know, uh, top 10, top, top 10%, top 20% of, of the state responses. She's done an excellent job. She's using the kinds of, of, of early warning indicators, not waiting until people get to the hospital, not waiting until people are dying, uh, uh, that she's using those early warning indicators and saying, you know, We've got a super spreader event with with Thanksgiving that's going to occur. If I can help prevent that, it'll 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 be it'll be that much better at Christmas. So okay, the- we're out of time. So thanks very much, Fred Brown. We'll get you back next week. You can talk about the safety aspects of it. I love to, you guys. It's it's exciting. It really is exciting. It's a great day. All right, Matt, take us out. All right. Thanks a lot to Fred Brown. Thanks to all our guests today. We had uh, Rachel Conrad from Impossible Foods and. Uh, Amanda Lawan from uh, uh, from Bamboo, Detroit. Uh, so great show today, and thanks everyone for being here. We'll be back next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Until then, it's Matt Roush. And Mike Brennan. And, of course, Fred Brown. <laughs> and Fred Brown. And you're watching the M Squared Tech Cast. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to M Squared Tech Cast. 